Hello and welcome to the Club Soda podcast. I'm Drew Yeager. Club Soda is all about helping you live well by being more mindful about drinking. If you want to choose better alcohol-free drinks, make connections or discover how to change, this podcast is for you. And if you want even more good stuff, come and find us at joinclubsoda.com. We don't normally put trigger warnings on our articles and podcasts in Club Soda, but if we ever needed one, it's today. In this episode, we're talking about trauma and how it can affect our use of alcohol. It's not that everyone who experiences trauma goes on to drink or that everyone who drinks too much has some trauma to uncover or work through, but our emotional responses to terrible events can lead some of us to using alcohol as a way to cope. Um, And it's important for us to talk about that. And I'm joined in this discussion by Mark and Victoria Escott. Mark is the co-founder of Life Chance and School for Inspiring Talents, an award-winning therapeutic education provider that specialises in working with young people and families who've experienced trauma. And Victoria is a therapist in private practice, specialising in trauma and addiction. And welcome to the Club Soda podcast, both of you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, Vicky, can we can we kick off with you? Can you tell us a bit a uh, bit about you and your background and what brings you here? Yeah, sure. Um, firstly, I'm so glad that that you said that about the you know the the trigger warning because I'm still surprised how often that doesn't get get mentioned with this kind of stuff and it's mm-hmm. it's really really important. So I'm really you know thank you for doing that and to people who are listening. Um, if you find yourself getting triggered and you'll notice that in your body sensations, you know just. Be okay to just step away if that's what you need to do and then, you know, get a cup of tea, come back if you want to, or if it's too much, you know, you don't need to come back. I think that's really, really important to do yeah. that because um, it's about um, people learning, but but keeping themselves safe as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, basically just just kind of what you said, really. I'm, I'm, I'm a therapist. Um, initially, I trained as a person-centred therapist, um, which really is guided by the client with what they bring and you just go with them um and i'll talk a bit more about that later because we have to take a very different approach when working with trauma mm-hmm. um, and i specialized as you said in in addictions i went to the university in bath with in combination with action on addiction and i did a degree in addictions counseling and i spent 13 14 years practicing you know in rehabs in community services mm-hmm. in alcohol services drug services that's kind of, was my bread and butter. And that was where my interest really in trauma started, mm-hmm. you know, where anecdotally I started to notice that a lot of the people that, that I was working with had had what Mark will talk a little bit about, these, these adverse childhood experiences. Yeah. And my own experience of, of childhood trauma has, has piqued my interest in that. So that's kind of what I do now. And I work in private practice and I work mainly with people who either drinking or taking drugs and and with trauma. That's brilliant. Um, And how about you, Mark? Tell us about you. Um, So um, I'm the founder of an organisation called Life Chance, which is a therapeutic education provider. Um, It specialises in working with young people and families who experienced trauma or complex life histories. There's another phrase I prefer to use sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, um, So one of the reasons I set my project up was, um, like Victoria said, I've got my own lived experience of trauma as a child, which took me into a world of drug and alcohol addiction. Um, And there was a moment in my life where I saw that I thought if there was some more education and I had some better education than when I was younger and being supported more. Mm-hmm. 
have some more caring adults around me. Maybe I wouldn't have gone down that path. So that really drove me to set up Life Chance. And um, what are the, we've got a few strings to our bow. Well, the first is Life Chance Education. And we run a chain of schools called School for Inspiring Talents, mm-hmm. which are therapeutic day schools for children from five to 16 years old. Um, I have Life Chance Care which is a therapeutic team headed up by a psychologist and lots of different therapists and a therapy dog who's amazing. He's my most well-behaved member of staff. Um, (laughs) We have life chance training as well. Myself and my team and Victoria works for that as well. We deliver a lot of training to other professionals, multi-professional audiences um, that work with young people. Yeah, on the impact of trauma as well. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, yeah, that's the, the, what I do from day to day. Mm-hmm. So me and Victoria work together, and we, as you can say, we're married, Mister and Mrs. Escott. Mm-hmm. And um, while our, we connected through our own recovery journey through drugs and alcohol, yeah, when we were younger. So we've got a lot of lived experience between us. Yeah, yeah. And so and that's you know, and I think that's it's a helpful perspective, isn't it? Not, not just to come at it as a um, as a professional, you know, with all of the training experience you have, but actually having skin in the game as well mm-hmm. on these issues. I think kind of does inform your position. Can we start with a really basic question? You know, I'm aware that. Um, trauma is a word that gets banded around and increasingly you know it's it's a um it's it's a word that people may have stumbled across over the past few years it may have like they may have read a book or two you know they might have read some articles but when we're talking about trauma what is it that we are actually discussing could you give us some kind of basics on that yeah, it's a really good question because one of the when we do the training, it's one of the first things we ask. You know, as you know, so it's either in person or a lot of stuff online now, put in the chat box, and you get so many different responses back on what is trauma. You know, and over the years it's changed. Tra- trauma used to be people thought particularly about car accidents and things like that, but they're starting mm-hmm. to learn about different levels of trauma. So when we ask lots of people what they say, you know, we come back with a definition that a traumatic event involves a single experience or enduring, repeated, or multiple experiences that completely overwhelm the individual's ability to cope or integrate the ideas and emotions involved in that experience. Uh All trauma contains three common elements. So one, it was unexpected. Two, the person was unprepared. Three, the person could do nothing to stop it from happening. So it's not the event that determines whether it's traumatic, but it's the person's experience of it and the meaning that they make of it that makes Uh it traumatic. So, you know, we may have... So an example of, we use the example of divorce. Divorce can be quite traumatic and cause trauma, depending on how it's managed. Mm -hmm. So I've met, I've worked with children who are very damaged and very traumatized from what happened in that divorce. And I know other young people who were very emotionally healthy because it was managed very well. So it's around, again, you know, how we, the meaning we add to that event and how it's managed is a a really important part to play on that. Mm. Yeah. And I think... think yeah, I just I just sort of add into that. There are those, you know, very specific, um, you know, events that happen. And certainly to have diagnosis of things like PTSD, there has to be an actual event. You can't mm-hmm. have a diagnosis without it. Um, so we're talking about these events or series of events where there is a, a threat to life or a perceived threat to life a threat to body integrity or a threat to sanity. That's another definition that's kind of out there. But then there's this other perspective um, people have probably heard of Gabor Mate, Mm -hmm. where he says it's not just about what happened. Sometimes it's about what didn't happen. So when things weren't provided 
that maybe in childhood we need to have provided to be safe and secure. Mm-hmm. Now there might be a difference of opinion about that. And I think that's that's the whole thing about addiction and trauma is that there will always be differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. And for every piece of research that supports one theory, there's research that supports another theory. But yeah. we can look at it in that context. Yeah. Um, it, it makes sense, yeah? Yeah. And I, and I guess the point of that is not to, you know, not to, not to kind of have boundary definitions where you say, well, yes you've experienced terrible life experiences but they're not traumatic you know it's not to kind of like box it actually all of this stuff really is about education isn't it it's about understanding your own experience and then getting the support and help that you need to learn how to live well in life you know and how to process and deal with all of that stuff you know so whether it's you know extreme childhood neglect or a series of events or a one-off thing or you know Mm -hmm. I think that I think that that three-point thing that you shared Mark is really helpful, you know, about being something being unexpected, being unprepared for and it being overwhelming. I think that's a, also a really useful way of kind of thinking, yeah, is this something which I need to take more seriously in my in my history and and learn how to live with well? Yeah. And the thing I'll say you could there's nothing you could do to stop it happening in that third mm-hmm. one. You know, we talk um now in the training we do, we, we particularly talk around in what I do around um adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so ACEs is so, so um, there was a study done in America in 1988 by two doctors, Folletti and Andy, Andrew, I think his name was. I'm not very good at um, remembering some of those names. I do apologize, but it was the biggest um, national health study done in America. Um, 1,750 adults, mostly white middle class Americans, were asked about their ACEs, about their adverse childhood experiences. And there were 10 questions looking at they've been subjected to, witnessed or suffered things like physical abuse, you know, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional neglect, mental illness, um, domestic violence, criminality, substance abuse and separation. Mm-hmm. So there's like 10 questions in that arena. And then depending on if you'd experienced one of those things, you were given an ACE score. Mm-hmm. It's a bit, you know, a bit raw, that. But I'm not saying you just take this and start doing this for yourself and then you can diagnose trauma. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just um, – and then they then started to look at the impact of – these aces and what had happened for these people started tracing back from illnesses they were having people addicted to drugs or alcohol and like some of the some of the stats that they started looking at is that you know if you had some of these aces you would then start looking at adopting some sort of health harming behaviors mm-hmm. and particularly with the children what they do is they start to self self-soothe and self-help which isn't always the best i look you know that's my thing as a young man figure um suffering from abuse i started to self-soothe by drinking quite early so mm-hmm. it's not always, I don't always, you don't always make the best choices. Yeah. But they talk about if you have four aces or more, there's things like, so you're two times more likely to binge drink and have a poor diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah? It's three times more li- likely to be a current smoker. Um, 11 times more likely to have used drugs. Um, seven times more likely to have been involved in violence and 11 times more likely to be incarcerated, imprisoned. So we start to see some correlation between childhood, childhood abuse and trauma into some of the life choices that we may make as we get older. Mm-hmm. But I say it's not a given. And I think like Victoria said just now, it's around sometimes what was missing there. You know, if there was enough care, love, yeah. support. Yeah, yeah. The kind of um, things that 
that are provided you know that that we need we know that we need these things now as children for attachment how we how we attach how we make sense of the world whether our environment is safe and we learn all of this kind of stuff mm-hmm. in childhood and i think you know the a study what it what it showed um was that there was there was a, like you said not everybody who has a problem with alcohol will have experienced trauma and not everybody who has experienced trauma will then turn to, to substances to manage that trauma. I think that's right, right? But we know that there is a link between mm-hmm. substance use and, um, you know, trauma. We know mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and this study showed that there was a really strong link with these this adversity that children suffered in childhood that could play out in, in their physical health you know Mm. their life expectancy would be reduced but there was an even stronger correlation with um their their mental health and the risk with mental health and um you know self-harm behaviors substance Mm. abuse that kind of thing so the link kind of is there really I, I think well, sorry, I was just going to say one of the other things that just struck me in, in your description of the study, um, Mark, just reflecting on, you know, we're, we're recording this over Zoom so that we can see each other. I just wanted to acknowledge some privilege that we're three white people talking to each other. A study that was done largely with white middle class Americans. There's also trauma which comes through um, what gets described as minority stress, you know, racism, homophobia, you know, the, the kind of the, the position that you find yourself in society because of who you are. Yeah, can be a source of um, significant stress and trauma for um, for uh, minority groups as well. Yeah. So you know, there's that Definitely. that gets played into the mix yeah. as well. The, the collect and that's kind of in the realms of intergenerational trauma um, and collective trauma of, mm. of of populations of people. And you could say we are kind of experiencing that now as well in in the pandemic. There's a collective trauma happening mm-hmm. because it's it's happening to all of us. So yes, I think you're absolutely absolutely right about that. Yeah, intergenerational yeah. trauma is huge. I think we've seen a lot of going through our own families. But say in, in, in cultural civilization, communities, in populations, definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Could could we talk a little bit about? Um uh, Mark, you mentioned about um, self-soothing, um, and I wonder if I wonder if um, Vicky, you may you might talk to that. Actually, you know some of the early coping mechanisms that we have for for dealing with trauma and how it is that they actually turn into addictive and damaging behaviours over time. Could you just give us a bit of an insight about what's going on there for people? Well. You know, I have to sort of, you know, put my little disclaimer here that, you know, I am not one of the experts. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sat here as Bessel van der Kolk and all of those kinds of things. So I'll give you um, the best of my understanding, given that, you know, this is my life experience and I'm and I'm still learning about this stuff all of the time. But, um, you know, when we talk about as a child, what we need is um safety and connection and attachment with our primary carers that's how we make sense of the world and babies and young children learn to regulate and soothe their selves through their caregivers in a very simplistic talk so if your caregiver is and and also here's another little thing about this where we talked about intergenerational trauma was that if your parent was not able to provide that to you it isn't that they were a bad parent. Mm-hmm. It's that 
they would probably also have their own trauma and their own ability, how they were soothed and how they were regulated at children. So I want to put that out there if you yeah. had those parents, right? Because, um, you know, I did. Um, and, and I was one of those parents as well when, when I was drinking, right? So um, so that's how we make sense of, of the world. And so that you learn that your caregiver or caregivers are either safe people who will attune to your needs and support you and regulate you, or that they're not. Mm-hmm. And then this sets in this um, survival mechanism in us, which most people understand as um, the fight flight response. Most of us have heard of that. And it really is based on survival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if a caregiver appears to us as frightening, we're a child, we're dependent on our caregivers for all of that stuff. So naturally, we want to come closer to our caregiver because we need them. We need them to help us regulate, to help us soothe, to feed us, to, to do all this stuff for us. But if that if that caregiver is also frightening to us, the, the that same mechanism for survival um, wants to run mm-hmm. <laughs> and pull away. So we start to develop you know, you can start to see how an attachment might form of push, pull, wanting to be close, then it's not safe to be close and pulling away. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of a, of a little bit about the the, the fight flight um, yeah. in very brief times. We don't have masses of time to go into it. Yeah. Um, so, so then you might develop a child, well, you could probably say from yours, and a more avo- avoidance style or like mm. mine was more of an anxious style uh-huh. and how that was mm. for you. And also for me, so when I started to then copy the behaviours of the pe- of the adults around me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, I, you know, I would say that fight and flight, I wanted to escape, escape reality, you know, and I, so from a practical view, how does that look in the real world when I'm having these emotions going on as a very young, well, very young child? coming downstairs after the parties that my parents had on the weekend and wanted to actually drink the alcohols that were left over mm-hmm. smoke the cigarettes in the ashtray because it was like you know i was following their lead yeah so that's so on a practical level we could see you know the, the emotional stuff that victoria's just sharing is going on into the into physically what was happening for me and what was around me and how i started to learn to cope mm-hmm. and I, you know what i'd realized was as a young child you know, we've got, um, Victor's always got older children. So our youngest is four and our oldest is 24. So, you know, I wouldn't go downstairs to my four-year-old little girl and start asking her for advice on some full-on life experiences. But mm-hmm. I would in myself still. Does that make sense? Because I got stunted. That fight, I got stunted at some of my growth. Yeah. So, you know, I've had to do a lot of work on stop asking this child that was traumatized for advice in life because he just wasn't very good at it. Yeah. It'd physically fight or physically run away. Yeah. And that's the thing we've done a lot of work on together in our marriage, which has been really great to look at and challenging at times as well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the things I think that people reflect on in the club side of community, you know, when people start to get their relationship with alcohol in order, um, either by by uh, stopping drinking completely or significantly cutting down. Um, actually, what begins to surface is all of the ways in which you got stuck as a child, as a teen, Nature, all of the ways in which you didn't develop, um, all of these, you know, there is so, you know, the, the sometimes that's about, you know, facing um, and learning to, and we'll talk a bit more about practically how you might do that 
you know, learning to integrate those difficult life experiences and live well with yourself and your personal history. But sometimes it's about going, actually, there was significant gaps in my upbringing, things which I needed to learn how to do, how to relate to people, how to feel confident in myself, how to feel safe in the world, you know, which I just, I apparently never learned to do as a child. And I've been drinking to cover up all this time. And now, you know, I've got the drinking under control and, oh crap, there's, I've got work to do. Um, it's, a, it's a really common experience, I think, that people face. Yeah, and, and it's a little bit like what, you know, what, what you're talking about there is that at the time, some of those things that people are talking about, those things that they didn't have, um, when they drank or took drugs, you know, it kind of, it was a solution to a problem. If they mm. lacked that kind of confidence and things like that, and they started drinking, then all of a sudden they were exuberant and started to go out there, you know, it was it was a solution to a problem at that time. Okay, it becomes a problem in the end. Yeah. But right then, back there, it it kind of worked, you know. And, and, and it's true what you say there, because that's the other thing when we are talking about the link between trauma and substances, yeah, that sobriety or abstinence really is it's a good thing but it only really addresses the issue with the alcohol if there is trauma there as well yeah so so if if the development of the the drink problem or the drug problem or whatever it was if that was a survival strategy so we talked about you know the, the central nervous system one way that people learn to calm that fight or flight response that they're constantly living with, which is very activated in people with trauma. They're constantly living in fight, flight or freeze. Yeah, we know that. And, um, you know, drink or drugs is, is is a way to manage that for people. Yeah, it takes away some of those symptoms that might ordinarily be there through the trauma. It masks it. So, In my work as a therapist, for example, when someone comes to me, one of the first things I ask them is, well, how did it help you to survive? Uh And I think it's important to do that. And so sometimes people um, will go really clearly. I'm thinking of one person. She said to me, I know for a fact, if I hadn't started drinking when I was 15 years old, I would have killed myself. She knew that Uh outright. Yeah. Uh And sometimes people might not know that because everything's so, you know, up in the air. So then I ask, well, what would life be like if you hadn't have been drinking uh-huh. or, or at that time? And they'll just kind of go, oh, it would have been, I, I don't know if I would have got through it or it, I was just in so much pain. I just wouldn't have. I don't know. And I, and I was like, OK, so at that time it helped you to survive. Uh-huh. So we can see it was. If, if the development of the of the drink was a survival strategy, when you stop drinking, new challenges emerge. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. And again, let's be clear about this. Like you said, if, if you have a history of trauma and you're listening to this, you know, please don't let that worry about you about entering into sobriety. Yeah, because we know that not everybody who has a traumatic experience goes on to develop PTSD with Uh these symptoms that we're talking about, quite complex trauma symptoms playing out in daily, daily life. We know that only about 20% of people do. And we used to think that trauma was quite a a rare event, but we know it's actually a very common human experience. Uh And most people who experience traumatic events go on to integrate that trauma without developing really severe 
um, PTSD type symptoms. Yeah, they might have little bits and pieces. So so just to reassure you that if you're listening to this and you're either thinking about stopping or you're in the process of stopping, it's not to say this is going to happen to you. But it's just for you to be aware that if you're sat there with a person who maybe does have a diagnosis of PTSD, or if you're sat there as a person who knows they have had, you know, trauma in their in their background, it's just to know that this could happen, that when you put down the drink, that stuff starts to rise. Mm -hmm. It starts to come up. And that's where planning and having the right support, because in some ways you know, the relationship between both has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So the reality is that recovering from either requires recovering from both. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's a really helpful insight. Um, I'm very quotable for the podcast promo. Um, So thanks for that. Um, Could could I just add this? Because this is quite important, yeah? So, you know, sometimes when people first get sober, they have those wonderful feelings of you know, the initial kind of stage passes and life feels great and they're mm-hmm. motivated and they're, you know, things are feeling better. And and if that's your, and that's a great, great experience. And we need to hear about that because, you know, sobriety or making those changes that you're talking, reducing, it does have such a positive impact. Mm. Yeah? But if you're a person who your experience is the opposite to that, because this stuff starts coming up, you can start thinking, why am I not experiencing sobriety like this? Yeah. yeah. Or you've tried in the past and these things come up and they lead to relapse. Yeah. It's just to know, to know that, to consider the possibility that it's not the, the, the sobriety isn't working. Mm-hmm. It's that there is the trauma that needs addressing as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very helpful perspective. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think everyone's experience of change is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, I think the other thing, just to say by way of context, just in terms of for anyone changing your drinking, is that um, if you if you were able to get it right first time, you would have already done it. You know, there is there is this process of change which is about learning. And the times where you mess up, the times where your plans go wrong, the times where you turn back to drinking as a way of coping, you've given yourself an amazing opportunity to learn about more about yourself and and what's going on in your life and to build beyond that you know you don't don't take it as a once for all you know I tried I tried going sober for 15 days and it never worked so I'm never going to try again you know there's the you know you can yeah continue to develop and grow and change Um, Mark, I, I'm aware that before this before this conversation, we had a bit of a chat about protective factors, and I wonder if we could we could we could dive into into that what that means in the context of trauma. Yes, because what's really interesting, Andrew, is like listening to Victoria speak. We we do a lot of this work together, and we work in our own separate practice. And there was a really interesting moment there where I was I drifted off because I was really in my head exploring some of the stuff we've done. You know, I was high, I was sort of looking at a deeper level. It was a bit like a ther- another therapy session for me. So thank you, Joe. Saw some great insights. You know, there was a, and a phrase came up in my mind that we all start to heal the moment we feel heard. Mm. And you know, and it was that sort of I was I was listening to Victoria as a therapist then, not just as my wife. And that thing of when you when you yeah, you all start to heal when we feel heard. And just looking at what are some of those supportive factors for us. And you were just saying about that mindset of beating, you know, sort of beating yourself up if you don't do stuff. Mm-hmm. The work that we've done on ourselves and the work we do with other people is when we start to create a world of self-soothing and self-love 
And that internal running commentary, that little voice in your head, that that's the little voice in your head now telling you you don't have a little voice. Uh-huh. That one, we're not mental. If you got it, yeah, we all have it. That piece of then, you know, telling you know, that's got less and less of beating myself up. Uh-huh. You know, and, and so one of the things I was thinking was there was about the amount of communities that I've been involved in. That phrase, if we start to heal the moment we feel heard. So, you know, there need to be other people around for me to feel heard. It just, and that's mm-hmm. why I started to, I was starting to start replay this process of healing in my head. It was, it was mm-hmm. actually really enjoyable. But that yeah. community is a big part of how, of how we, as a protective mm-hmm. factor, isn't it? Looking at replacing those bits that were missing from our childhood as well. Just, yeah. just a bit more about communities. You well, like. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's like I'm, I'm taking over. Isn't you crack on, love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm quite happy. Um, I'm listening. I'm learning a lot today. Yeah, from uh, yeah Mark, Mark's, in, Mark's enjoying happy, happy, know, interesting thoughts all by himself in the corner. Always learning. So, so let me let me draw on your community initially, Club Soda, and why I think that is such a good thing. Yeah, is because in um, addiction work, you know, the the most dominant um, sort of community in addiction has been twelve step. Yeah. Mm. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I was a member of 12-step recovery for a very, very long time. For a long time, it worked very well for me. Um, and then as life changed, I found it wasn't really for me anymore. And I was looking for something different. But how could I take what was good about that and implement it into my life now, mm. which was very, very different? So, And, and so what this means now is that there's choice because for the people that it does work for, who can affiliate with that program, who really get on with um, the concepts within there and kind of what happens, it works very, very well. Uh But what for the people that it doesn't, you know, there has to be kind of alternatives. And I think about this more now in this terms of what we've been talking about, attachment. Um, We've been talking about in trauma, um, the survival systems, flight, fight, response, collapse. Now, Stephen Porges, who developed polyvagal theory, says there's also another survival mechanism, and that is based on safety and connection. Mm. We need that to survive. As human beings, we need connection and we need safety. Um, so, So any community that comes together where you have connection, you can have social elements going on, it feels safe. Uh In my book, the more options there are of those things, the the, the better their chances are because we do, we need each other. And and when you've been doing something for a long time, to have people um, that you can connect with, and it's like, you know, you're doing all sorts of stuff, right? You Uh connect now. You know, when I first started out um, my journey into sobriety, which was in 2002, there wasn't anything like this where you could connect online. There wasn't even 12-step meetings online. There was nothing Mm -hmm. like that. You had to go to a meeting. That was it. Now, there's this wide range of stuff that people can connect with each other and just talk things through. So I think safety and connection is a definite protective factor. So where you can find that... um, you know, a group like that is 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 a wonderful thing. Yeah, and that ties in then to another protective factor is safe people and safe relationships. People who calm and in, this is particularly important in people who've experienced trauma. Yeah, where they're the the safety often the threat often is within. They're mm. perceived 
threat of the world because the traumatic event if it is over because there are still people living in traumatic Mm -hmm. if the event is over the traumatized person's body doesn't recognize that the event is over so in some ways the event isn't over until the body says it's over Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so so people who've had trauma need safe people and safe relationships who calm and soothe their central nervous system, not really activate them. (laughs) So, so know who your triggers are. And it's not to say, you know, we have very close people to us who we love, who are, who who trigger us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can also um, balance that with having people in our life who really soothe us and who feel very safe for us. I've had lots of mentors in my life who are not my family members through my journey. So I think kind of mentors, that kind of thing, if you've Mm -hmm. got a particular passion that you love, then, and you get a mentor, great. You know, protective factors of physical, our physical health. I feel it's really Mm -hmm. important Mm now. I weight train four times Mm -hmm. a week and I do Thai boxing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really good for me. It keeps me physically and mentally strong. Mm-hmm. It's a very protective factor. And we explore that together quite a lot about supporting each other going out, and particularly in this pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know, we talk that the brain is a social organ. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's you know, my livers don't need your livers to survive, or my kidneys don't need yours, whatever however yours are functioning, Drew. You know, it doesn't bother me, mine are mine are working, you know, is that yeah. sort of thing. But my brains, this is really, really important. You know, you know, if we we could I could put you in a room with all the all the best food in the world and Netflix TV and lock you in there and you'd be physically healthy. You would go back. I was, we would go crazy after a while. It's right. We're, we're not monetized. You're allowed to swear. It's oh, I was going to say, yeah, you're going to be trying to stop saying batshit crazy. Yeah, really I had that. I know. I, I, do, I, I swear quite a lot. I'm still yeah. a little child. But that whole thing of that, you know, that community is really important. Brain is a social organ, as just as Victoria is saying, you know, several, like, several clubs are now. It's even more important that people can connect, that we can talk to you like mm-hmm. today to come and have this conversation. You know, this is really helping me and supporting me as well, as well mm-hmm. as I know. And hopefully it will support other people who are listening. Yeah. Course, you know, that community thing and how we find different ways in this new normal to do that is really important. So, yeah, and I'm really you know, for talking to you earlier about intriguing about how you're doing that. And then, you know, they are still you know, face-to-face events, hopefully they'll come back. But the mm-hmm. continuation of, with my work, we're looking at this whole hybrid approach now. Yeah. We still work with our young people face-to-face. We still go and deliver trainings and that, but we have to start doing stuff. We are doing stuff online as well. Yeah. And I find yeah. that really interesting that you can connect like this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth saying, just as a bit of a plug for Club Soda and what we do in this space, you know, all of our courses come with some kind of social uh, connection. We actually did some research um, a couple of years ago um, looking at people's experiences of change in the club soda community and the and the number one thing that came out that people said helped them was connection with others mm-hmm. um, and so that's built into all of our approaches to change you know so even if you sign up to our free course you know we've got this free um, short course called how to change your drinking it's an introductory three days a bit about alcohol free drinks a bit about mindfulness a bit about kind of self-assessment helping you understand what you want to change it comes with a facebook group that you can join that you can connect with others and it's short term you know it's it's only the beginning of a process but one of the things that we hear consistently is people will come and they'll share their share their story and they'll be you know the community will will surround them with love and 
and what what it prompts in people is this, this sense of I thought it was just me I thought I was the only one who'd experienced this or I'm the only one who'd gone through this and people get so much comfort from knowing that they are not alone you know and whether you know as you were saying with Vicky with 12 step groups or with online communities or whether it's that sense of it's not just me that can be so helpful and healing for people I think I really just sort of pick up on that point that you know is it's so important what you just said there, Drew. And one thing for me, looking at particularly around the ACES study, around that, you know, whenever people have experienced this, I thought that I was the only one. I thought there was something bad and wrong with me. Because mm-hmm. I said I was that child, you know, that four-year-old kept telling myself, well, if this stuff happened to you, there must be something wrong with you, Mark. Yeah? Yeah. And there was a moment when I discovered the ACE study for myself and I read it and there was this moment when I just, you know, there was so that shared, it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you. Mm-hmm. And it changed my entire life. I stopped that internal beating myself up, you know, that it's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you. Mm-hmm. And then from that, we started to connect and share. And as I shared more, my community grew. When I first set my schools up, I was told 10 years ago that I was absolutely mental, batshit crazy. And you couldn't take traumatized little people like my, that we are, and put them in a school together. It would be chaos. And it is chaotic times. I'm not lying. But then being together, listening to them share about their own experiences. Oh, you're in care too. And no, 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 you've been, and I've been in 10 care homes. Well, I've been in 10, 12. It's like that, even in, so even in what I'm seeing in my own little community that I work in with the students, it really helps them community all the way through. And I I think for me is, that was really helpful because I really believed in community <laughs> and I really believed that you know, by putting young, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as dangerous as people thought putting some of these traumatized young people together, mm-hmm. which has been proven, right, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and it's like that growing and it's say like that community was just saying, now we're in Victoria, continuously supporting each other. An example being like with the exercise, Vix has done really well for the pandemic, I'd slipped. Mm-hmm. So we've looked at a thing where around language, you know, where now I just move every day. Yeah. There's none of this, I've got to exercise and go to 10 classes or do an hour. I have to move every day and continue my spiritual practice every day. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's just, I do a 10 minute walk or a five minute meditation. Other days it's a lot more, but that whole mm-hmm. thing of supporting each other in that process mm-hmm. as well. You know, I think, you know, that's, that's the sort of positive for the pandemic for us. We've been at home and we've had to find different ways to support each other. And yeah. And, and yeah, keep that and community, keep the community going as well. And I, yeah, t- and I totally love what you said there about when people come to Club Soda and they say, "Oh, you know, thank God it's not just me." Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's so important because this is, you know, this is my opinion. I'll state that quite clearly. This is my opinion, um, but it's based on what I've observed in years of working with addiction and, you know, in more recent years with trauma. Is that for both? there is a lot of shame involved for people. Mm-hmm. And that shame is very isolating. And when Mark was talking about that stuff, and particularly when we're talking about adverse child people, some of your listeners who may have had these adverse childhood experiences, you know, when you're young, because we've talked a little bit about attachment and development and your primary carer, the, the belief system that you develop about yourself, because it's it, even though maybe your parents aren't particularly safe to then acknowledge that your parent is not safe is even more unsafe. So you make you the problem. Uh-huh. And so that develops those feelings of shame and self-worth and, and kind of stuff like that. So why you're why also things like this are good for people with trauma is we're talking about safety and connection 
they might be very fearful about connecting with people mm-hmm. because people are not safe. So yeah. where there is now these tools that they can do things online they can feel in their environment where maybe they feel a bit safer and they can start to engage. They can start to build relationships. They can start to explore their relationship with alcohol safely to Mm -hmm. the point that they might then feel up to once they've made those connections, going to one of the social events. I went to a club soda event in Exeter. I'd like to have more of them, but we Mm -hmm. had a fabulous time. There was five or six of us. We went out for some food very different people. Some people were completely abstinent. Some people were um, attempting to moderate. The The boundary of the, of the day out was that nobody drank when we went mm-hmm. out. And that was that was great. And we had a we just ate. We just talked. We just had a really nice time. Actually, thinking about it, we need to do another one. It's, yeah. great. it's great. Yeah. And, and I think we need that. So that is a protective. Those are definite protective factors. Yeah. And I'll just say this finally, because I'm mm-hmm. talking so much. So when <laughs> When we're talking about trauma, when you talked about um, resources, yeah, some people might need additional support through their sobriety. Um, And that might have to come if, if there is complex trauma or PTSD. It might be that that has to come through professional support as well. And again, this is a bit like we were talking about um, earlier. That depends on resources. So a protective factor is if you have the finances to be able to go and pay for a therapist, that's a protective factor. If you don't, you have to go and refer yourself to a a service and you might have a long waiting list and all that kind of stuff. So so again, there's that sort of discriminatory thing on our resources and what we've got available to us. Right. Um, But my biggest thing I would say to your listeners is that if you're attempting to come overcome Um, you're drinking and you feel that you need that extra support, whether that's through a community service or whether you're going to find someone yourself, um, you know, someone who, who, who works with alcohol. If you have this um, trauma history, um, my biggest piece of advice would be to know that whoever you work with, it's, it's important um, whilst connection and someone being compassionate and empathic and, you know, supporting you and feeling safe is fabulous. I would also recommend that they have at the very minimum, have some trauma aware practice in place because of the risks of what we talked about, the flooding and post, you know, the post-traumatic stuff coming up and how you manage that in the context of maintaining your sobriety. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's a really, that's a very, uh, it's a very useful uh, thing for people to know, just to kind of, to, to reiterate that, mm. um, that, um, yeah, you're right. If you are somebody who's experienced from, you need to make sure that whoever you're speaking to, and, and this is true for, you know, whether you've experienced trauma or not, but make sure that the person that you're speaking to, if you are seeking professional support, that they are qualified and experienced or they've got significant experience and that they understand the issues that you are taking to them, you know? So, so, so and people, people who've trained in trauma, people who've trained in tra- trauma sensitive practice and, you know, who understand these issues will say that they, you know, that they understand these issues. So, so if you need support, get the support that you need and make sure that it actually meets your needs. 
And I definitely totally agree with all that. And I wanted to share as well as we come to the end is one of the things that we've both seen through our practice is how you can flip adversity into positivity. Yeah. And we have so much evidence of that. And I think just sharing again, you know, you know, just that moment where you heard Vicky talk about the club soda event and getting excited. A real example of the work you're doing is like, so you know, there, I imagine if we did a deep dive into club soda and started to pull out information, we would see so much evidence of flipping adversity into positivity. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing to, mm-hmm. to share. You know, and, you know, we know it's happening. I don't have to do a big deep dive because I can say, I know what's happening inside your, your community. So that's, yeah, really good. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for this conversation. I think it's been really helpful. Um, uh, if people want to connect with you um, online, what's the best way of people finding you in the world? So we've some myself personally, if you if you if you're Mark Escott, E-S-C-O-T-T, uh-huh. on all normal social media platforms. Um yeah. my organization Life Chance is uh info at lifechance.org.uk. Um I have a book called One More Life Chance, uh-huh. um, how to support the journey from trauma to transformation. And you can find that on Amazon. Brilliant. And that gives you a background of the stories I've just shared about my own personal experience and the work me and Victoria do uh-huh. and and the evidence that now, hence why we've done this work and we've got two ace-free children. <laughs> like they don't have that world. And yeah. we were looking at you talking about how we how you can break those intergenerational life cycles. Yeah. And yeah. we have finally broken the chain in our in our family. Brilliant. Congratulations. So yeah, so one more life chance. How to support the journey from trauma to transformation. Mark Escott, Amazon, and then all um info at lifechance.org and myself and Victoria, you can find us on all social media channels. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn under Victoria Escott and I also have a Facebook page, Victoria Escott Counseling. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great chatting to you. Thank uh, you. Thank you very much. is brought to you by club soda you can find out more about what we do on joinclubsoda.com and on our social handles at join club soda